Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sports Rivals. I'm Gary Thorne. We are delighted to have you with us. We are recording this during the corona crisis, so we deeply appreciate time being taken by our guests to join us here in some very tough times. Here on the Sports Rivals, our purpose is to preserve the memories of some of the great classic sports rivalries. We do it through the words of those who participated in those rivalries, so you get the rivalries described from the inside out. And our guest today, kind of a unique setting where you may not think about them as being as rivals, but when you think about it for a minute, uh, it certainly can be classified that way. Ned Coletti has uh, been involved in so many aspects of baseball and hockey, for that matter. Ned was the uh, GM with the Dodgers 2006 to 2014. He put up the best win percentage of any GM during the years that he was there for those in the National League. He had been uh, an assistant GM with the Giants, and I remember Ned from the days in the press box when he was working in the front office of the Chicago Cubs, where uh, he first started in Major League Baseball. Barry Axelrod, for over 45 years, has been a sports agent. Barry has represented some of the uh, the greats of the game, the Bagwell Biggio couple, uh, Matt Morris, Mark Harmon, Rick Sutcliffe, and a host of others. Barry is an attorney, undergraduate, and law degree from UCLA and uh, really began uh, the sports law business for a firm that he joined initially when he was younger and then went out on his own and has had his own law firm uh, for a number of years. So you got Ned Coletti, the GM, you've got uh, Barry Axelrod, the agent. And I wanted to start with you guys because I got to thinking, and Barry, you may remember this, there was a time when GMs wouldn't talk to agents. When agents were first coming into the picture for professional players, did you ever encounter that? And can you talk a little bit about the growth of, of agents and representation of athletes? Um, yes, I, um, I can. I, I did encounter it uh, early on. I think uh, the general managers back in the day, both in football, I started in football, but both in football and baseball were generally, uh, you know, old baseball guys, uh, you know, old school, definitely. And, in walks a couple of young, you know, punks, as they viewed us probably, uh, you know, 25, 26, 27 years old and uh, trying to change things and, and fighting for our clients. And I don't think a lot of people took kindly to that. I, I experienced it only, uh, only briefly. Uh, and I think I was kind of um, got involved at the time when, uh, things were starting to change. Uh, I, I had one particular general manager who uh, I, I pretty much thought hated me a lot. I, I represented three or four players on their team. And and uh, we actually, way back in the day, had arbitration cases that would go very quickly. And I, I had two arbitrations in the same day and won both of them. And he pretty much came out in the press and said, I will never talk to him again. Uh, of course, he, he eventually did because uh, I represented a couple of these good players, so he had to talk to me. But it was uh, there, there was a lot of joking about the fact that he he wouldn't talk to me again. I'll, I'll just give you one one postscript to that: is that years later, it was actually Bill Schweppe from the Dodgers told me uh, that he was friends with this particular general manager. And I said, oh, boy, that's uh, he's, he's tough. He's uh, He had a reputation of being sort of a, a, a mean, nasty curmudgeon. And you know, I said, that's rough, being friends with him. And he said, yeah, you know, but he likes you, though. He's always told me you're his favorite agent. And I went, 
Okay, that's that's really hard to believe. I, I wonder that what experience these other fellows have had, but mine is not always great. Right. <laughs> that rings some bells, Ned. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, uh, agents teach you how to listen. They really teach you how to listen because they can use the English language to their benefit. And they can, uh, if you're not paying attention, they will pick your pocket. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I always did respect about Barry, and Barry and I had a, a pretty big arbitration case that uh, uh, I don't think it really ever separated us, but it was it was a little bit rugged for both of us. But uh, I always trusted Barry. And uh, maybe on this, uh, this podcast, I'll find out I was a fool. But <laughs> I always there was about five percent of them that you, know, you were getting it straight. You may not have liked what you heard, but at least you were going to get it straight. And there wasn't any any uh, magic to it or any uh, any taking you down a path that didn't really exist. You know, I had agents tell me, "Yeah, I've got uh, I've got sixty million, and I've got five years." You know, and if you're not paying attention. Uh, you think that they got a, a five-year deal worth $60 million. No, they may have a 10-year deal that's going to pay $6 million a year, and they may have the other number in another deal. But if you're not listening, you're not paying attention, you're going to think that you got to go five and 60. Barry was was um, always, I thought, on the up and up. That's why I'm talking to him today. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you know, and, and Ned, I appreciate you saying that. And we were, uh, I had, you know, four or five instances where I had uh, a pretty big free agent. Ned's um, talking about the free agent situations where you're talking to various teams. And I always made it a point with my clients. I explained to them early on that we were never going to allow a bidding war. We were going to listen to every team respectfully. Uh, and if a team was so out of line, we would certainly early in the process say, well, you, you, you know, you're really not even close. And, and, uh, I, our, our, a close friend of ours, uh, uh, both then mine, Kevin Towers was one of my great friends. And, yes. um, there were a couple of times when I had free agents that he really wanted, wanted to get a hold of. And he'd say, we're friends and you won't even give me a chance. I said, Kevin, let me be honest. You can't afford him. You're not going to be able to do it. I said, let's, you know, focus your attention elsewhere. Uh, and, and, you know, I always thought that was the right way to do it. We never told one team what another team was offering. Uh, we said there will come a time when we'll ask you to make your best offer, and then we'll consider all the best offers and make a decision. And I think that maintained relationships over the years. And uh, let me say this, but just a note on that. Uh, I know we're on a show about rivals, but I have a hard time viewing that as a rival. Um We've known each other a long time before he got into the baseball operations side. We became good friends and in years of negotiating contracts in regard to different people. Uh, I don't think a, a crossword was ever spoken. Um, I don't think there was ever distrust on either side. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, when before Ned was a GM, there were occasions when they he was an assistant, and he, he and I would talk about things, and uh, oftentimes we were kind of on the same page, and the, and the GM might not be in a certain certain situations. That's the one that led to our arbitration case that happened. If uh, And by the way, I, I lost two arbitration cases in my entire career, and one of them was to 
to to Ned and his uh, crew in that one. So I have him to thank for that. <laughs> that one that involved Mark Grace, and I've got uh, I've got two two distinct uh, memories of that. One was from I think it was in the spring of '93, perhaps '92 or '93, and then also uh, it, it it kind of. Uh, came back two winters ago after 25 years of being dormant. But uh, one thing I don't think I've ever ever said to Barry is um, this is when, when car phones had started to become part of the deal. And uh, the case was on a uh, Monday in Los Angeles at the Sheridan by the airport. I remember specifically, and I was in Chicago working for the Cubs and decided we were going to fly out. Our little group were going to fly out on Saturday to get ready for this case. And I never really believed we were going to do the case. We were, we had uh, great relationships with Barry. I did at least we had, uh, he had Rick Sutcliffe there before Mark Grace. So we had, we had done business together before, but we, we just couldn't get over about a $50,000 gap. And it was a million dollar arbitration case. And I can remember on the Friday, uh, my boss had come in and and, uh, and told me, you're doing this case and you better win. And he was, he was really putting me under the gun. And um, I called Barry just to see one more time if we could figure something out before I made the trek from Chicago to L.A. And I've never I've never told him this before, so I hope he's not mad at me now. <laughs> oh, but, boy, here we go. <laughs> I hear him, you know, we're talking, he's driving. And I think he may have been driving with another agent, Tony Antanasio, who was, uh, is a good friend of, of both of ours, another San Diego based agent. And I, I go to hang up the phone because I think Barry's hung up uh-huh. and I hear Barry say to maybe Tony or maybe somebody else, I can't believe they're going to come out here and do this case. <laughs> And he's not telling me that. He's telling the passenger in the car that. But I haven't hung up yet. And so, you know, I don't make it I don't make it sound. They hang up and I'm thinking, I wonder if they're ready for the case. You know? And I think, well, now my boss comes in again and he says, When are you leave? I mean, he is like on my back. So I know I'm leaving and I know I'm going out there. So we do end up going out there. We do end up doing a case and a lot of uh Looking back on it, some funny stuff happened in the case. If you remember, Barry, I think uh, Doyle Pryor was was with the union, and they had come into this little meeting room where, where you hold an arbitration case in a hotel meeting room. And they had asked, does anybody want any lunch? The hotel was just being courteous. Well, nobody's in the mood for lunch. I mean, this is like, <laughs> this has been brewing for months, right? And I, they, I hadn't, I probably hadn't eaten for days. And I, <laughs> and I think Doyle had ordered coffee or something. And so like you start the case because the player will go first with the case in chief. And like a minute in the Barry's case, in comes the coffee, right? <laughs> And, and the guy drops the coffee pot and the, and the cups and everything else all over the floor. So you got, to, you got all this racket going on. And the case has already begun. I don't know if you remember that or not, but I, I, I do. Thought, and, oh, and, this is off to a historic start. <laughs> and, and they used to, I don't I haven't done arbitration for a long time, but they used to enforce timing very carefully. You have an hour for your case in chief. The other side has an hour. Then you have a half hour for rebuttal and they have a half hour for rebuttal and that's it and uh so here i am okay is it is my time getting eaten up here (laughs) (laughs) calamity that's going on (laughs) 
<laughs> it was like symbols crashing, you know. It was like, oh, uh, I'll tell you, I, I, I can tell you something I remember, which is, I I left the room, and I don't know if it was I got a call or I, it was it was going to be one last shot at this. You remember this, Ned? Yep. And I, I walked out, and I, I guess it was the GM at that time. And uh, I went downstairs and sat down. I said, okay, this is it. I mean, we're so close. It's silly. And I think I proposed, um, I, I think I had told Ned what I was going to propose beforehand, which was let's close the gap by throwing some incentives in this deal. And if he, you know, plays to the level that we think he's going to play, he'll earn, you know, he'll earn back to what we want. We'll close the gap. Very reasonable, I thought. And so I, I go downstairs and present this and get an absolute no. We're going to hearing. Oh my God. I, I think I was steaming when I walked back in the room. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> we were like the 50,000 apart, and I had suggested uh, an all star game bonus and a gold glove bonus. And, he, and Gracie had already won one gold glove, which can be a repetitive reward. And I think then you went down with the call. And so it was like a conjunction of both our ideas to solve this so we didn't have to go fight it. And when you came back, I knew it was uh, it was decided by somebody besides the two of us. <laughs> there we were. Well, it was. We we thought we were on the same page. It's. Uh, I'll tell you one more thing. I remember. I don't want to get too deep into detail, but but Gracie was a great player. He was. A, a, I think he deserved more consideration for the Hall of Fame, and hopefully, one of these veterans committees or will give him more. But he he didn't even make it past the first. The first vote and, and the guy had you know uh, he led the decade in the 90s in hits and in doubles yes and, and, i mean yeah perfect and, and a defense a great defensive player but more known for his defense and he was not a home run hitter and so i you know i'm looking for any type of statistics i can use to plead this case and so I came up with runs produced. That was my stat. You know, I, my, my whole case hung on runs produced because that stat is, if I recall it, is is runs plus RBIs minus home runs because you don't produce twice. You an RBI and a home run. So, so I and Gracie with only whatever 17 home runs or something, he came up great on the runs produced number. He didn't have spectacular RBI numbers, but, but he had pretty good runs scored numbers, and then you. Hardly sept, uh, uh, subtracted anything for home runs, so he had a really good runs produced number, but top three or four in the league. And I can remember looking across the table and seeing Ned, and I believe it was Michael Weiner at that time. Uh, who, you know, they, they got a yellow piece of paper and they pull it out. And they go, okay, here's Mark Grace. You know, runs produced. Uh, you know, 90 RBIs and 90 runs scored minus 17. Wow, look, he's got 163. And then here's player B, you know, and they actually did player A, player B. Here's player A, which is Gracie's numbers. Here's player B, you know, um, 110 RBIs, um, you know, 97 runs scored and whatever it was at that time, 73 home runs. It was with McGuire. And they go, okay, which player would you rather have? Even though Mark Grace's runs produced number was so much higher because of the not subtracting home runs. He had this other guy with the spectacular stats and he was making less than we were asking for. Grace. So I just kind of went, Oh no. <laughs> oh, <you know. laughs> we had, 
Good. <laughs> that, 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 that didn't quite work out the way I was planning. So <laughs> we had, uh, you know, going against Barry was, well, I knew it wasn't going to be easy. And um, we had looked at some of his previous arbitration hearings and he had won a couple cases, I think, with Wally Joyner. Yeah. And um, another first baseman, client of Barry's, obviously. And he had used that argument, but he had used it differently because of the value of Wally Joyner's power. So I looked at two different cases Barry had done, and I found a section where he talked about the value of power and how power pays. <laughs> and I'm looking at Mark Grace with seven home runs or eight home runs or 12, whatever he had. And so you do exhibits, okay? And you've got these things planned. They're in your case. But in rebuttal, you can, it's a little bit more Wild West-like. It's a little bit more you know, free uh, as far as what you're going to try and propose. So in the back of this meeting room, luckily the coffee never got to it. In the back of this meeting room, <laughs> I had this um, exhibit underneath a blanket or, or underneath you know, some, <laughs> some covering, and it was this quote that said, if you, are a, if you are a first baseman and you produce home runs, you deserve to be paid among the best because power pays. <laughs> and next to, the, next to that quote was the name. Well, I can see a quote with a famous name next to it. Next to that quote was the name Barry Axelrod. <laughs> So I left it in the corner until we got to rebuttal. And so I, I barely said anything at the case. But I said this. I said, look, we have it on a good baseball authority. That power is how guys get paid for corner <laughs> positions. We've got it. We've got it. One of the great, one of the great people in the game, knowledgeable, smart, really articulate. You know, he's got his finger on the pulse. And I walk over and I and I had the name covered up by tape and I and I and I take the sheet off it and there it is. It, it's got their quote about how power pays. And and the arbitrator looks at me and he goes, Well, you know, who said that? And I pointed to Barry, I said, He did. And I pulled off the thing. I said, We got a player here with no power, like him or not. Like the hitter, good fielder. We don't have any power. And I, I hated doing it. But remember, I had the boss who was like on my back. If I didn't come back with a with a victory, I wasn't coming back with a job either. Oh, so Barry, what'd you think of that? <laughs> uh, it was like watching an episode of Perry Mason. Where, you know, <laughs> I should have just stood up and confessed. Yes, it was me. <laughs> the actual lawyers who I brought in to do the case with me. They actually have that exhibit on their wall. And this is going back 25, 30 years. So we end up winning the case for a million. Right? And, and so my boss is happy with me for about 15 minutes. Barry's mad at me. Mark Grace, who I had a great rapport with from management player and vice versa, wouldn't speak to me. We end up going to Mesa to spring training. He's sitting in the dugout one Sunday morning all by himself way before BP. I walk out there. I go, Gracie, how much longer are we going to have this uh, – you know, this no communication thing. And he goes, you know, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? And so we, we mended the fence. So now 25 some years go by. This is the winter, I think, of 17. And um, we're having dinner in San Diego to see Barry and, and to see Rick Sutcliffe and to kind of reminisce and get together. And we end up having dinner. And who shows up but Mark Grace? And I've seen Gracie a million times when he was with Arizona and doing TV there. So he and I have crossed paths probably 40, 50 times 
since he since I left the Cubs and since he left the Cubs. So it's not like we've got a lot of old ground to traverse here or hard feelings. So we're sitting there at dinner. It's about two hours into the dinner. And the table gets quiet. Fancy restaurant in the San Diego area, crowded on a Saturday night. And he looks over at me and he goes, you. I go, what about, what me? And he goes, you owe me a million effing dollars. (laughs) This is 25 years later, right? I said, I don't owe you nothing. And he goes, you owe me a million effing dollars. And he's standing up. And I look at Barry and I point at Barry. I says, he owes you a million dollars. <laughs> oh, my God. This is, this, is my, this is my trusted friend. It, it, it <laughs> a secret exhibit on me and listens to my uh, phone call. <laughs> oh, my God. I was wondering because you, I mean, uh, Ned, you came up through the Cubs front office and you knew a lot of players you were working with public relations wise and, and Barry, you'd met so many people doing your, your legal work and then the representation of agents. How do you draw that line on the friendship and the professional when you're looking at the, you know, Ned on the other side of the table? Well, I, this goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, us being on a show with the word rivals in the title, I, I, it's hard for me to look at Ned as a rival. I had that kind of relationship with several uh, front office people, the most notably probably Kevin Powers. Uh, Theo Epstein is a very close friend that I talk to regularly. He, uh, uh, you know, he came up through the Padre organization working under Kevin, and we became close then. Um, yet we've been on the other side. Uh, Theo and I uh, negotiated until recently the two biggest contracts in Padre history, and yet remain, you know, good friends. Guys, you can go out and have dinner with it. It's something that I think I think people don't uh, get to have a misconception about the relationships, especially in modern times. Uh, that since those curmudgeonly old general managers are basically gone, is we're all we all become friends somehow if you do it the right way i think you're friends i mean i uh, i've gone on trips and outings with another general manager too another front officer too some of my clients some of my other friends and there was an article um, written in the, in the san diego paper several years ago by tom krasovic and and uh at the uh he asked the same question, basically. He just asked Gary, how can you do this? How can you negotiate contracts and be on the opposite side of Kevin Powers, yet you guys are at the closest of friends? And I said, you know, neither, and, and he, he asked Kevin the same question. And what we said, and I can apply this to Ned as well, is that neither one of us have ever compromised doing what's right for your client uh, because of friendship, you fight for your you fight for your client. Ned fights for his team. You know what's best for his organization. You battle it out. You go to arbitration. You do whatever you do, and then you make your deal. And at the end of it, you shake hands. And I I, I likened it to I don't want to get into hockey because I don't know anything about it. But I said it's it's like a, a hockey game where you know I watch hockey games every once in a while, and these guys beat the crap out of each other for an hour uh, or two hours or however long it is and then go out and have a couple of beers together and that's kind of how I see it you know it doesn't 
doesn't have to impact your relationship or your friendship as long as you do it the right way, as long as you don't lie to somebody or cheat somebody or, or, or do something underhanded. I think you maintain those relationships and that's been more my experience than being at odds with anyone is uh, good relationships with, with most front office people that I've ever dealt with. It's really about trust. trust. And, uh, you know, those agents that I, I got along best with and, and few better than Barry, maybe none better than Barry. Uh, it was really because I, I trusted what I was hearing. And I also trusted after the contract was executed. I also trusted that if I had an issue or a concern with a player, that I could bring it to the agent and the agent would help the player, help myself, help the organization figure out what we were going to do. And a lot of agents, once they signed a contract, good luck getting them back on the phone. Good luck having them help out a player uh, or help out an organization because of a player that, that got into uh, you know, a little bit of trouble or went down the wrong road. And uh, Barry was always somebody that I knew I wasn't just doing a contract with uh, that he was going to be honest and forthcoming with it, uh, but that, I, that he was going to be uh, an agent for the player for a long time and, and had to do what was right and, but also was responsible to, to making sure that a deal didn't get off the tracks after a deal had been executed because of, uh, of, of not paying attention to what both sides really needed out of a situation. And the last thing I'll say about it is uh, it's a great line, from, uh, I think, from The Godfather, which I've probably seen maybe once, uh, if not a thousand times. <laughs> it's, uh, it's business. It wasn't personal. And um, I knew when I talked to Barry about Rick Sutcliffe or, or Mark Grace or, or any of the other players that uh, Richie Aurelia when my, during my giant days, that it was, it was going to be hard fought and it was going to be him representing his client to the best uh, position he could possibly do. And he knew I was going to do the same thing for the Cubs, for the Giants. But he also probably knew that, you know, I wasn't going to BS him about what the guy's role was going to be or what we thought or, or, or try and compare him to a player that uh, he had no business being compared to on a negative side. Yeah. My, my thought on that and, and, and underlying thought on that, and I agree with them on every point he just made. I always viewed, and I have said this, I've probably said it to Ned before that our, our really, we have the same goal here which is whether it's Mark Grace or Rick Sutcliffe or Richie Aurelia or Matt Morris or whoever it was that we worked together on is we want that guy to succeed and continue to succeed and, and hopefully come back and negotiate another big contract, you know, a few years down the line. That, that was what I wanted. I wanted to see these guys have long, successful careers. And I think if you're a team, you want the same thing, bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so if, but when you do represent, I, I always I used to be called the, the agent of the good guys, and I I would always say, okay, if I'm representing the good guys, what are these other guys dealing with? It's just, <laughs> you know, when you've got lunatics like Mark Grace or Rick Sutcliffe, you know, there's they, they never got into any ugly trouble, but those times, and especially Gracie, after Ned would tell me, oh my goodness, you know, here's what are we gonna do here? Okay, we'll have a talk, and you know, we'll settle things down, but. Uh, we, you didn't want to you didn't want to diminish his personality too much because he was he was a character. But uh, you know, every once in a while, yeah, okay, Gracie, come on, let's bring it back between the lines here. And 
So <clears throat> we would work together on that. And yep. That's a mutual goal. Let me uh, <clears throat> let me finish it up here, guys. I can't believe we're on the on the time here, but uh, I'm wondering. Both of you have been in it long enough to have seen a ton of changes, especially when it comes to the money. Where are we with the agents and the clubs in this day and age? Is it is it as good the relationships as you're talking about that you had with one another? Has it uh, denigrated or, or better or about the same? Um, I. I don't, I don't, I don't know what kind of relationships um, GMs have with agents. I used to talk with Kevin about it at times. I, I, I think I've probably talked to Ned about it. You know, complaining about a particular agent or thinking that a, a particular agent was good in the view of clubs. You know, reasonable. Um, I think for the most part, agents are probably reasonable. I don't know if they have the same types of relationships we had uh, because. Um, I think the GMs and front office people these days are different. And I guess agents are too. Um, and, and in regard to Ned, I mean, Ned and I go back to 1984 when Rick Sutcliffe signed with the Cubs, uh, was traded to the Cubs, not signed with them, where, uh, when he was traded to the Cubs in midseason. And Ned was actually a, a contact person, being the PR guy. And we, we got to know each other then and his role as the PR director. And I mean, that, that friendship got so deep that Rick formed a, a foundation that uh, uh, was uh, helpful to people around Chicago of scholarships, or, uh, season tickets to games. And we had to have an administrator and the administrator we brought on board was Ned's wife, Gail, who did a terrific job on the foundation for years. So that's how close we were in the, the relationship we had as Ned gravitated into doing other things and I continue to represent guys, we still had that underlying long-term relationship. And I don't know that those long-term relationships exist that way anymore. I, I agree. Um, you know, I, I see it a little bit from the outside more than the inside. So it, I, I say it from that perspective. Um, when, and in the 40 years that I was deeply in the game, the, opportunity to learn and to have fun doing it was immense and you know you'd have your day and then you have your night game and then after the game you would end up with somebody whether it was a manager a coach an agent a writer you'd end up with somebody where you would talk the game till one two three in the morning and build relationships and i think that whenever whenever you have a relationship that all you do is ask somebody to do something for you or your department or you only it's only an ask type of relationship it's really tough to do business i think when you get to know people and you you get them with uh, uh where you know people can quote put their guard down a little bit and be who they are and you get a chance to understand the dynamic of the human being i think it it, it fortifies business it fuels business it fuels relationships I don't know how much of that goes on anymore. I learned so much in my career from a guy like Barry. I learned the agent business a little bit from, from people like Barry, Tony Antanasio, uh, Joe Bick. I, uh, I learned a lot of baseball, a lot of inside, inside baseball from guys like Don Zimmer, Jimmy Fry, Dallas Green, Lee Elia. I don't know that that goes on anymore, but mm. I, I, I would have not. Um, lo- I love the sport from the outset but I fell deeper and deeper in love with it and to appreciate it to a much grander 
uh, presence than, than I had even as a young kid when I, when it was all I ever did or wanted to be, uh, it, it grew and grew and grew because of the relationships with the people inside of it, that you could talk about your day, their day, their challenges, your challenges, their successes, your successes on and on. And I, and I don't know that that's still there. I'm not saying it's not, I just don't know that it is. And I do know that it was there for the 40 years that I was in the midst of it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I can't imagine that it's still there because people are, are a little, they're not, they don't have the history uh, that, that we were able to develop. And I think people would be surprised if, if I, like, I, I can remember moments, uh, like Ned said, sitting around after a game in a bar or a, a restaurant uh, where I, I remember in particular with the Giants, there would be Mark Sweeney, um, Richie Aurelia. Uh, Felipe Alou, Ned, a couple of my friends, if the team was in L.A. playing, uh, you know, Mark Harmon, who Ned got to know through that, and, you know, baseball fans, and everybody would be sitting around visiting, maybe a sports writer or two, you know, uh, people from all realms of baseball. You know, you, you might see uh, an, an umpire walk through and sit down for a minute. They're, they're not supposed to, but that would happen. But, you know, people people knew each other long-term and were friendly. Uh, it was almost every night. Yeah. The only night that didn't happen is if you, had a tra- if you were traveling. Other than that, it happened pretty much every night from the beginning of spring training until the end of your season, whenever it was. And it, it brought life to the game. You know, I mean, I, this show for me, we could we could do this for two or three hours. I wouldn't get tired of it. You know, and having conversations about the game, about about players, about things you've seen, all that history. That's that's I missed two things since I left the GM gig. One is these types of conversations with good people like Barry and, and Gary and, and, and guys like you. And also the competition, you know, the competition I get other ways the hockey, get hockey job and, and uh, you know doing a TV thing. But the conversations like this. I don't know that they exist anymore, and I mm-hmm. and I miss them because it's it's where you got to see the soul, the soul of the people and the sport you loved. Yeah, you know, you even hear it on the level of the players, uh, who you know they don't sit around the clubhouse, uh, you know, having two or three beers after the game and talking the game. They all they all bolt. They're you know they they they're gone. The old you know twenty five cabs or twenty five players. I don't know if it's that bad. I'm not saying every team's like that but I don't think it's the way it used to be with, you know, sitting around in the clubhouse, listening to the veterans talk the game. And, uh, you know, I, I think that has disappeared to a great yeah. extent. Well, on that cheery note, gentlemen, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I get to thinking about for me, uh, I started out with Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner with the Mets uh, doing games, Bob and I doing radio. And it, it was the same thing. I mean, there wasn't a game night or day where we weren't sitting at a bar, having a meal at a restaurant with those guys talking baseball. And if for me as a broadcaster, somebody says, what's the greatest thing you ever had? You know, yeah, I've done World Series games. I've done All-Star games. I got a ring, blah, blah, blah. But I was those moments that I spent in the middle chair. I always said the best seat I ever had in baseball was at the bar between Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner. Just listen. Yeah. I mean, that's it. If that was the joy, that was the fun. And uh, and I uh, unfortunately, I think social media has a lot to do with that. I think guys are afraid. 
that wherever they go, whatever they do, somebody's taking a picture or a video and it's going to end up on a social media somewhere in a negative way towards them. And, and um, that's really sad because uh, that takes a lot out of what you get out of this game. That's for a whole other show, guys. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for uh, our chapter of the sports rivals. For Ned Coletti, Barry Axelrod, thank you guys so much. Just It is such a treat. I couldn't agree more. I could do this all day long and just sit here and talk. You can learn more about what we do and other episodes by logging on to thesportsrivals.com. You can join the conversation with questions and suggestions for future shows. You can follow us on Instagram at the Sports Rivals, Twitter at Rivals underscore podcast, and on Facebook by searching for the Sports Rivals podcast. Thank you again for joining us, everybody. We wish all of you to be well. And always remember, it is the rivalries that make the games. Be well, folks.